Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you love Star Wars. Well, I love it too. And I've always wanted to tell my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about Skywalkers and more about those who were on the front lines. A boots on the ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud 79 is all about. And I hope you enjoy it. This is episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. A galaxy in turmoil. As the Empire expands its hold across the galaxy, we meet Solomon Gwai, a teenager from a farming colony on the outskirts of Imperial territory. He wants out. He wants adventure. So he joins the Imperial Army. My name is Solomon Kwai, and at 17 years old, I joined the Imperial Army. If that upsets you, it's probably because you had the good fortune of being born in a place and time with more options. I wasn't. When the Clone Wars broke out, I was a week shy of my 13th birthday. My family was from the colonies in the Valdila system. We were a community of farmers, land workers. So, my oldest brother, my older sister, and one of my aunts signed up to fight for the New Republic. We were proud. We believed in the Republic. We knew how oppressive the Trade Federation was to people like us, so this was a cause worth fighting for. My brother was killed in a star battle in the Corvair sector. My sister went missing when her ship attempted to breach a planetary blockade. If your ship goes down in orbit, either you're blown to atoms or you burn up on re-entry when the planet's gravity gets a hold of you. They never found her body. My aunt, Lois, was a nurse on a medical frigate. She came home a year after the fighting stopped. She was a bit squirrely after that. The horrible things she saw and the stories that came with it were the kind that you love to hear when you're young and stupid because you don't understand what any of it actually means. At 17, I came to the realization I'd never make it as a pro Limmy player. I wasn't much of a mechanic either, so a job on the landing platforms was out. And the idea of spending my life in a field harvesting Yebin seed made me sick. So, some of my idiot friends and I did the most responsible thing we could think of. We went into town, got hammered on El Hardian Ale, visited a brothel, and joined the army. I was so drunk, I don't really remember putting my thumb on the screen. I have vague images of us getting the stink eye from the Imperial officer forced to deal with us. That's it. The next thing I remember is waking up in a transport, strapped to a mesh seat with the worst headache I've ever had. There was a Clatoonian sitting beside me with breath so awful it made me throw up. I was still dry heaving and covered in vomit when a sergeant came up and hit me with a stun baton. 
That was my introduction to life in the Imperial Army. I was sent to a training facility on X-Part 2. It's a high-grav twilight world on the edge of the core systems. Training was intense. To find the best of the best, the instructors watched every move you made. If you did well, you got selected for stormtrooper training, but you didn't want to be a stormtrooper. Right, you, you might as well just eat a detonator. It's a quicker way to go. I mean, what's the point in being the face of the Empire if you're dead? I was a pretty good shot, though, and my instructors on the range nominated me to step up into the Scout Corps. I liked the challenge. I thought of my training as intense Limmy practice. I know, stupid, but I loved Limmy as a kid, and I had aspirations of being a pro player one day in the interplanetary leagues. I was a pretty solid offensive player, but I will say this. I was unreal on defense. I could cover plenty of field, and when I hit you, I dropped shoulder and drove. You knew you got tackled. Now, I realize if you're from Coruscant or one of those other rich core worlds, you might not even know what Limmy is, but I'll break it down as simply as I can. It's a full contact game played by two teams on a field. You're trying to score goals by getting a ball into a net. but. You gotta keep your head on a pivot, cause while you're trying to score points, the other team is doing their best to break every single bone in your body. Regardless, I didn't want to be a scout trooper, and it wasn't even the physical stuff that was the problem. Do you know what they do? They hang out in puddles for days, eating soggy rations. I hated it. I snapped at a sergeant during a subthermal combat exercise. In my defense, I hadn't slept for almost two days and was diagnosed as severely dehydrated to the point of delirium. Still, discipline is the credo of the Corps, which meant I was a washout. I spent a few weeks on labor duty and then was back in the regular army. Mudders. That's what we were called. The lowest of the low. Mud. Overall, training was alright. I was young enough and enjoyed most of the stuff we did. It was fun. You shot guns, blew stuff up, got drunk and beat the shit out of each other. Everything a teenager fueled by insecurity and hormones likes to do. After graduation, we all got our deployment orders. We made promises to stay in touch, but I knew it had never happened. They were good people, I just knew that once we got to wherever we were going, we'd meet more good people. The ones that mattered. The ones we'd bleed with. And for the most part, I was right. I got called into the 934th Legion, the Iron Star. They were initially a volunteer resistance militia against the Techno Union. As the Clone Wars dragged on, they got looped in with the Republic and had their ranks filled by other volunteers. That's another thing you should know. Most of the Republic soldiers during the Clone Wars weren't clones. They were just people who had a grudge with the Separatists and picked the other side. Well, now that the war was done, the 934th was officially part of the Empire, its own legion. 
and it was sent to the Sestin Nebula. Now, I know you've never heard of the Sestin Nebula, unless you're a wine drinker. See, Sestin is just one of thousands of theaters of war you've never heard of. The Empire was fighting constantly, just to stay on top. But so was the Republic before them, so same shit, different flags, I guess. So we were sent to Sestin. I didn't know this at the time, but the army was meant to clean, not fight. We never did any conquering of new terrain or anything. We just held spots that already flew the Imperial flag. If there was a minor uprising or excessive piracy, you sent in the army. If you wanted to storm a secessionist stronghold or a planet that still claimed to be loyal to the Separatists, you sent in the stormtroopers. Open fire. Buckets were always given the glory work. Made sense. Stormtroopers were the Empire. The rest of us, including the Mutters, were just the ones who paid taxes. It took eight months to get to Seston. Normally, that'd be a problem. I mean, who wants to spend that long holed up in a dingy container ship? But somehow, the Legion was being transported by a Star Destroyer, and not one of those Clone War Venator-class ones, an Imperial class, the Crossfire. The Imperial class were huge, bigger than anything I'd ever seen, and we had the entire thing to ourselves. To put this in perspective, an Imperial-class Star Destroyer can accommodate 35,000 troops comfortably, on top of the crew. And we were just one Legion, 15,000 of us. So there was a lot of space on board. We put it to good use, too. They trained the shit out of us on that ship, drilled us 10 hours a day, combat exercises, classroom work, in particular, identifying improvised ordnance. We did a lot of hands-on stuff with the engineering battalions, too, building defensive fortifications. See, that's the reason we were headed to Seston, to fortify it. Seston was an odd little celestial anomaly, a dual star system with its own nebula, one star inside the nebula had three habitable planets, and the light sources from within the nebula, the way it reflected light off the star and gases or something, created the perfect environment to grow grapes. I'm not joking. The Tibis grape only grows on three planets, Sestin 1, 2, and 3, all of them in the Sestin nebula, and the Tibis grape is the grape used to make Tibian wine. Beloved for its soft but sweet flavor, like catching a scent on a passing breeze. I didn't come up with that, by the way. It's the actual sales line from the Holonet. A lot of very important people, allegedly one of them being in the Emperor's inner circle, were quite fond of Tibian wine. And that was the catalyst for our deployment. The catalyst, but not the only reason we were headed there. There was also a major starport in the system, and it was on four trade routes, and was a bit of a problem for most trading companies. Pirates were preying on unescorted freighters, and the dock workers in the port itself were crooked. 
Shipments were going missing, which meant a lot of important people weren't getting paid. So Command decided to put a Star Destroyer in orbit and watch the rats scurry off into hyperspace. This is where it gets exciting. That port is located in a proto-moon named Jeff Tiandes, after a Twi'lek trickster god. And Jeff Tiandes is in orbit of Sestin Four, which is one of the few planets with easily accessible deposits of a rare sub-element called Kenyan 68. And I know you're wondering why that matters, but Kenyan 68 is used in the manufacturing of compact cloaking technology, the type of cloaks that require minimal power and can render any mid-sized freighter or transport invisible to sensors. They're primarily used by pirates and slavers. And that's another big reason why we were there. Five battalions would be sent down to Sestin Four to patrol the mines and ensure Kenyan was not misallocated or stolen. All shipments and sales of Kenyan 6-8 would be handled by the Empire. We would be the only ones buying, period. The Empire didn't just come in to secure the wealth of merchant guilds and defend the locals. No, we came in to ensure the Empire's own existence. We came in and took over. Revised shipping protocols, cancelled trade deals, all of it. The only ships allowed in and out of the system needed to go through Jeff Tiandes and submit for inspection. Any other vessel would be deemed hostile and detained. Or destroyed. The only ships going back and forth from the port to the planets would be licensed frigates and cargo haulers given writs from the Imperial Board of Trade. It was a good idea, secure and efficient, but it sure as shit pissed off the local traders, so it was a good thing there'd be a full Imperial Legion in town, keep anyone from getting too resentful. And in case that didn't scare everyone, the crossfire was going to stay in the system for a few more months until order was secured and things calmed down. Jeff Tiendez even got its very own permanent garrison. And since it was all for show, what do you think that garrison consisted of? You guessed it, stormtroopers. Move along. The boys in white. Smug pricks. Give me regular reports, please. We came out of hyperspace just after breakfast and I was one of the lucky five battalions that wouldn't get the chore of defending a vineyard, so I was boarding the transport that'd take us down to the surface of Sestin Four. Each battalion was sent to a different part of the planet with its own aerial support company and a collection of engineers and armored units. This was meant to create a consistent level of security. Our CO had a great way of phrasing it. Planetary cover for rapid and lethal response. Colonel Noval Gast made her career in the army. Originally, she was part of the Civil Defense Force on Ukine more than 20 years ago. The Clone Wars broke out and she joined the Republic Army, which became the Imperial Army. Planetary cover for rapid and lethal response. There are times when I lay down, I can still hear that line rattling around in my head. The canyon mines were all laid out along chains of deposits. You could follow them along the landscape like a zipper running down the map. 
In theory, it made defending them significantly easier. The entire planet had just over four million settlers. Of those, more than half were Twi'lek. The rest were a mix of everything. I'll say one thing. They didn't take too kindly to us being there. Imperial policy had totally rearranged their entire economy, and they had no qualms ensuring that we knew they didn't like us being there. Fortunately, 5th Battalion's camp was fairly isolated, so any hostility they may have had didn't bleed over. We were given orders to defend Sector Blue. It was on the northwestern portion of the planet's main landmass. Plenty of marshes, jungle, and two significant mountain ranges. The perfect terrain for anyone wanting to engage in a guerrilla campaign. Camp Vibus, named after the senator who'd pushed for this deployment, was built on an island in the middle of a river, the River Tiastialma. We all just called it the ass. It was the widest, slowest moving river I had ever seen. You could have told me it was just a big skinny lake when I first laid eyes on it and I would have believed you. Sector Blue was hot in the summer with oppressive humidity that made everything stink. Then within a four week period, the entire climate would go dicks up and you'd be surrounded by ice and snow for three straight months. The cold was better, actually. Things didn't reek like ass. Yeah, I should mention, the reason we called the river the ass was because it smelled like the worst industrial sewage line ever created. The fish, if you can call them that, released a lot of bio-waste via gas and it bubbled up to the surface. Thankfully, it wasn't toxic, but it was still awful. When we landed on the island, it was bare. It was just an island. Trees, scrub, and some vicious frog things bigger than the average dog. We set up our dinky tents in rows and then got to building the landing pads, defensive structures, mess halls, infirmary, everything. The last thing we built were the barracks. The commanders had this idea that if we knew our own quarters would be the last thing up, we'd work harder. Those were good times though, the building phase. We didn't know what shit was coming our way, we were just always busy, always talking. I got on pretty well with this Keshian named Staven. She was a rifleman, just like me. Her family were gear monkeys on the outer rim, I think. Dermos, actually. And my parents owned a garage that dealt with land speeders and shuttlecraft. I grew up with a spatial phase wrench in my hand. I even worked on a pod racing pit crew before I enlisted. She had a mouth, but knew when to keep it shut, so she didn't buy us too much trouble. Our comms guy was an Atoan named Zivin Murray. He might have been an alien, but he was a farmer, like me. We had a lot in common, actually. The guy was huge, too, and never got tired, like ever. No matter how hard they pushed us, that guy just kept going. I later found out it's because Atoans don't have a heart. They have this wild circulatory system that just keeps blood flowing. And for some weird reason, he loved digging, which we did a lot of. It's relaxing. You just dig. 
It's soothing, rhythmic, way better than being shot at with a DX67 comms unit on your back. I know a lot of infantry units don't have a comms guy anymore, given the gear they use these days. But Sestin 4 had a gritty atmosphere that dicked around with our signals, so we needed a communicator with juice, which is why we used the DX67. It could get a signal into orbit, which is handy for calling in an orbital bombardment on a specific sector when you needed backup. The problem is that a comms unit that size is easy to see and track and just makes your whole unit a target. Our camp had well over a thousand Imperials from day one, and we worked. Things went up fast, and I don't think I'd be exaggerating if I said that our platoon did more work than anyone else. The reason? Our LT. We had a cloner in charge of us. Yep, Lieutenant Dev Orto. Fought in the first year of the wars with the Separatists. Had an early designation, or so I was told. No one actually knew what it was. Rumor had it, though, he was from the second batch. I do know his name was Orto, because that was the battle where he had his first cloner's dozen, Orto-Plutonia. Pretty bloody one, according to the books. Oh, and a cloner's dozen means you get 12 kills off a single charge clip, so it's very rare. Anyone who's done it has the tattoo. His was on his throat. If you corked off, he'd lean his head back a touch. Not a lot, but just enough so that you'd see it was there and then shut your mouth. That guy, he was all business. Never took his mind off what was going on. We all hated him, but loved him too. It was like, no matter what happened, when he was around, everyone else would leave you the hell alone. Even senior command, we were his. No one else's. The week before we got our first call out, we were sitting around a fire getting crushed. The barracks were all built, and the senior officers gave each platoon two nights rotating leave. Had to stay on post, but still, it was incredible. Even with the smell, the night sky on Seston 4 was beautiful. I told you earlier how this system had a nebula that made growing Tibis grapes possible. Well, that nebula was a solid two-thirds of the sky, and it gave off a dull purple shimmer. It was gorgeous. You could get lost just looking up at it. And getting to sleep in and relax? We hadn't done anything like that in months. The fire was going. Someone had just thrown on a few logs. There was liquor splashing. And Morastus, the platoon's secondary medic, was going on about the Jedi again. I don't think they even had powers. Fuck you, Morastus. They had powers. They're fucking Jedi, stupid. Kator was the third squad's heavy gunner. Big, terrifying, and was not at all a fan of our secondary medic. No, they didn't. I mean, maybe they did before, like in the Old Republic, but by the Clone Wars, no. They didn't have shit. Just techno garbage. No. The LT. His voice was like a stiff breeze, man. We didn't know how long he'd been watching or if he was just passing by. No way of knowing with that guy. He just spoke, and everything went quiet. They did have powers. They had the Force. 
and it made them something else. Something you won't understand until you see it. I honestly don't remember him ever speaking before that. Just yelling and telling us what to do. But that night, he really cut into us. It was like being a kid and hearing war stories on the Holonet. I fought with them for years, until they betrayed us. Until they sought to use the war as a way of taking over the Republic. Were it not for the Emperor, you'd all be worshipping them as gods. Remember that. It was quiet for a second, then Tolan, a rifleman from the 4th Squad, said what we were all thinking. Even if we didn't want to admit it. Maybe they were gods. They didn't die like gods. Yeah. That was when the awe really hit us. The LT just dropped a bomb that he killed Jedi. Or saw them die, who knows. He walked off after that, just strolled away like it didn't matter. I was 18, and I just found out that my CO had iced a Jedi or two in his day. That was a big deal. And I have never forgotten the way those words hit. A few days later, we were back on duty. At this point, we'd spent plenty of time running exercises and classroom work began in earnest. It included medical advisories on the various parasitic life forms we'd be dealing with. Those frogs I'd mentioned earlier, the ones that were all over the island? Turns out, the females would inject embryos into prey via their tongue. It was pretty funny the first time we found that out. A guy in the second company woke up one morning when his calf exploded and greasy little tadpole things were all over his cot. There were also these snakefish called Grittic that would slither out of the water and pull you under if you came too close. They were around 60 feet long and blaster fire didn't do much. A slug thrower, that's what you needed. Because of them, the heavy gunners and grenadiers in each squad started carrying a specially made Corinthian C7 slug rifle. They packed a punch. Would pop your shoulder out if you weren't braced properly when firing. Definitely enough juice to bring down a critic. Rip the bastards clean in half. We were in the middle of one of these flora and fauna briefings when we got our first call. See, we had these bracelets that were all synced to a central schedule, letting us know where to go and when to be there, like the whole platoon. A hollow screen popped up and laid out your whole day. It's weird to think of something like that outside the army, but it was great. You always knew where to be. And then, all at once, they all went red, started beeping stopping the instructor mid-sentence. We're up, boys! The message on the hollow actually said, Platoon 79, loadout, pad 3. These alerts had all been drills up to now, and at first everyone thought it was just more of the same. But when I got up from my chair, I started to realize it wasn't. I remember where I was sitting, too, because when I jumped up, I smashed my right leg into the bottom of the table. I thought my knee was going to explode. I looked out the window while I was swearing and I saw four low-altitude assault transports. Lardies. Getting primed for takeoff on pad 3. And that was definitely new. 
They were the same ones the cloners used back in the war, except they weren't new anymore. They were pieces of refab shit. They had patchy paint jobs and everything. The buckets got the good stuff. We got the leftovers. Besides, we were just making sure the Kenyan was safe. What did we need functioning low-level assault vehicles for? There was a lot of chatter as we threw on our gear. 20 pounds of plastoid armor, a Blastec E-10 blaster rifle primed with an armor-piercing plasma rod for a close-quarters combat, five extra E-10 clips fully charged, a Blastec recharge power station with solar panels, five RPS-6 rockets to be used by the squad grenadier, Imperial-issued 8-inch vibroblade, four thermal detonators, a first aid kit, back to respirators, two days' worth of rations, socks, skivvies, toiletries, and the all-important entrenching tool. It totaled just under 80 pounds. The idea was that every time we left the post, we wouldn't need to come back for at least four days. Now, you may have noticed that our loadout only had two days' worth of rations. Well, that's meant to last four. That sense of irritation and confusion you feel right now is part of the military mindset. We were so used to suiting up, we could and had done it blindfolded. But when I looked out the window and saw those transports, I knew something was different. It made me nervous, tense like I was lined up at the starting blocks waiting for the gun to go off. I kept my mouth shut and wondered if anyone else saw the transports too. We got to pad three and there was no lining up or briefing. We boarded. It was on. Our squad sergeants were at the sides of each transport and ushered us all in. From the classroom to the transports took less than 20 minutes. We were still over the camp when the LT briefed us on our mission. I was breathing so hard as we got airborne that it was tough to hear anything over my comms unit. I had to bump up the volume, but the gist was pretty straightforward. A mine in Zone F-87 was under attack. There was an attempt to steal multiple containment crates of Kenyan, but mine-owned security services stopped it and they were awaiting our support. We flew in at four times the speed of sound and were expected to arrive in less than 30 minutes depending on air pressure. Then, silence. I think I knew this was it. Our platoon's chief medic, Corporal Husto, was on our transport. He'd seen action with the 722nd Legion a few years ago during the closing months of the war. I was studying his face to see any traces of worry there. I didn't know what to expect, this was all new, so I figured that if he was okay, I should be okay. The transports dropped out of mock speed and we all lurched forward. LT came back on the comms to tell us the aggressors had broken through the mine's containment lines and had begun moving out with the Kenyan. Then a flash from the window. I looked out and the transport on our right was in pieces, splintering and going down into the trees below. It took me a second to figure out who went down. It was squad one. Fuck, Morastus. Corporal Husto looked out the window and muttered. He was pissed. Morastus was the secondary medic and now that she was dead, that meant he was the only one left. That's a lot of pressure. 
When I realized that, I panicked a bit. What if I got shot and needed a medic? Now there was only one of them. Then I wondered if the LT took it, but his voice broke in again on the comms. Squads two and three, secure the perimeter. Assist with the locals and find out as much as you can about the enemy. Disposition, weaponry, direction of their escape. Do not pursue until we've assessed how much Kenyan was taken. Squad four, I'll join you in a sweep of the mine's warehouses. All of you, listen to your sergeants and you'll be fine. The timing on that guy. The second he finished, the transports landed and the doors slid open. We were out and the rain and heat blasted my face like steam. There were two warehouses and whoever attacked only got into one of them. The main door was open wide. Juntala, our squad sergeant, directed us toward it. I didn't hesitate. I just ran and hopped from cover to cover. We secured the right side of the hangar door. I looked over, saw a gray uniform on the other side. Then we moved in, all of us. Our squad was 15 strong and we moved as one, just like the drills. The raiders cleaned it out, at a cost. I counted seven bodies. We inspected the second warehouse. There was nothing there either. No traps, and the locking mechanism on the door was intact. There was a lot of scoring from blaster fire though. Heated firefight for sure. Even with the rain, there was a burnt ozone smell everywhere, like a firing range. Once we'd secured the storage area, we met up with the other two squads. LT was talking with the sergeants and the mine security guys. The one in charge, I guess, a big yellow Trandoshan. We just looked around and awaited orders. Pulled out to back sticks and puffed away, checked our weapons, prepped. Tried not to think about what was next while also preparing for what was next. In operation, the mine had about a hundred people in it. At least thirty of them were now dead. The survivors were lining up the bodies. The miners we spoke to said the attack came all at once from every direction. The fire was constant, even as the raiders made their way to the yard. It was a highly coordinated attack. Now, attacks were common, just part of operating a non-union mine on a planet like this, but they never experienced an attack like this before, one with this level of sophistication and numbers. Apparently, before we were deployed, if a mine was attacked, they could negotiate. There were even times raiders would straight up buy the Kenyan at market prices, but now that was considered criminal, treason. Plain and simple, because as soon as that canyon was out of the ground, it was imperial property, bought at pre-agreed rates, which was whatever we told you we'd pay. So if raiders came knocking, you held your own and called it in. Looking over the miners' tactics, they did a pretty decent job defending the place, kept their head in the game and held their ground. They pinned the thieves in the yard with the warehouses, and that's where most of the casualties happened. And as soon as we came out of mock speed, the attackers broke through, poured in, and ran off with whatever they could take in their transports. Looking back now, I have to laugh at what a pompous ass I must have seemed like. I was green, fresh out of camp, and had never even been in a legitimate firefight and I was acting like I had advice for these guys. What a dummy. 
The sergeants called us over while the LT got off the line with high command. Gentala stepped forward, paced in front of us and said, Take a knee and listen up. We're moving out on foot. The raiders made their way east and we'll pursue. Three standard columns. Squad two leads, four to the right and three to the left. And what about squad one? We gonna go back? Kator. Remember when I said he wasn't a fan of our secondary medic, Morastus? Turned out they'd been hooking up for weeks. Who knew? The LT was the one who responded, making it clear the briefing was over. That transport went down intact. They'll be fine. We focus on the mission at hand. We're to track the enemy and reacquire what was stolen. By the time we're done, Squad 1 will be here waiting for us. And what if they need medical attention, sir? Last I checked, one of our medics was already there. Now form up. So, that was it. We moved out. Who stole the Kenyan? Did the miners play a part in it? And what happened to that downed lardy? That's next time on The Sigil. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud 79s cast. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi and final production is by Rob Johnson. And I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.